Welcome to this shiny new episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast, the first of a new year and a new decade. This is a podcast that explores issues in global health and human rights. And this week, we're looking at health and human rights in indigenous communities around the world. Does the medical research and development community meet their needs? The answer, of course, is no, and not least in the fields of infectious disease and HIV and viral hepatitis in particular. I'm afraid that very rarely do we see data that articulates the rates of HIV in in Indigenous communities. Very rarely do we in the global AIDS movement listen to the experience of those in the Indigenous communities that are directly impacted by HIV. And rarer still, do we ask those communities what their research and development needs are? All too often, we imagine that their needs are no different from anyone else. And whether through poverty alleviation efforts or outreach of medical services to the marginalised, they will somehow be covered. Well, this week, we meet Trevor Stratton, who is one of the world's most passionate dogged and utterly compelling AIDS activists. He's also one of the most modest people I know, and he has been at the forefront of the global indigenous HIV movement for over a decade. He is co-founder of EHAC, the International Indigenous HIV and AIDS Community, and he's going to be hosting a special pre-conference for indigenous voices to be heard and strategies to be developed here in the Bay Area in July of this year, 2020, just prior to AIDS 2020, the global conference that convenes researchers, policymakers and communities from around the world. Well, it's an absolute honour for me to welcome Trevor to the show, joining us via the magic of the internet from his home two hours outside Toronto in Canada. Trevor, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. It's a real honour to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Well, you are one of the few long-time, long-term Indigenous HIV activists that, that I've certainly known working in the field. Could you tell us a bit about your backstory, I mean, the extent to which you feel comfortable sharing it? You are Ojibwe by, by birth. Can you tell us a bit about that? Okay. Well, Ojibwe, um, I think it's known in the U.S. mostly as uh, Chippewa. And it's actually the same word. It's a bit of a different dialect. Ojibwe, Ojibwa, Ojibwa. It's, it's, we're the same people. So the, the border between U.S. and Canada cuts our nation right in half. So, you know, that political border has uh, affected my family because I have families in the U.S. Uh, and Canada. Um, my my mom is Ojibwe. She's from Mississaugas of the Credit River First Nation, and my dad is uh, English, like third, fourth generation English Canadian. Uh, I also have French blood, and I also have Mohawk blood, all of whom were enemies and at war with each other at some point. So I've had to kind of reconcile that. I think I'm well placed to um, work with Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples alike. So I'm kind of lucky in that sense. I walk with one foot in in many worlds. Growing up, were you able to identify with your Ojibwe uh, heritage, or was this something that you had to discover as you as you came through life? That's a great question for any Indigenous person, I think. Um, well, I was I didn't realize I was Indigenous until my parents separated, um, and, and I, we went to live with my mom's family when I was around eight years old from a suburban 
uh, English chalet in a suburb to um, living in a, in the countryside, basically in in poverty. I wasn't used to that, and the indigenous my indigenous part of the family uh, wasn't at the same economic socioeconomic level as uh, my other side of the family, and. You know, when I would ask questions of my indigenous grandma or my grandfather, they were reluctant to to give me information. And I think it was kind of a fallout from residential school and from uh, some of the conversion to Christianity. I was told that, um, you know, don't ask that question. That's devil worship. Huh. Or if I would ask questions about the, the uh, traditions of two-spirit people or the LGBT gay people, we had special places in our communities. and. And I was told that that's that's possession by the demon of lust. So these are that's through colonization that my yeah. family has carried that that shame, and that was passed on to me. So it wasn't until much later, after I I became HIV positive, when I began to discover who I am as an indigenous person. There's a lot, a lot to explore in that, if I may. You, you mentioned residential schools, and these. Um, across a number of countries with indigenous and colonizing populations have been a major tool by the colonizers. Could you tell us a bit about how that affected your family, your family's experience with residential schools? Yeah, well, a lot of indigenous communities have experience with residential schools. And it was the case where the RCMP, you've heard of Dudley Do-Right, the guy in the red jacket and the nice Mountie hat, well, to, to indigenous peoples, they, ha they have a different impression of, of RCMP, and often they were the people that would come and take the children away, often hundreds of miles away, where you might spend years before you see your family again. And it had a devastating effect in our communities in the sense that the, when the children did come back, they were ashamed of, of their grandparents and eating traditional food and catching animals and, and living in a traditional way they came back often without knowing their language and they weren't able to communicate with their grandmothers anymore. A lot of our old people, they say, the elders tell me that a lot of the old people just walked away and died of, of, of sorrow in the forest alone because they couldn't bear what was happening to the children and, and, and trying to imagine seven generations from now, where, where will we be? And here I am, seventh generation, and we're alive and we're, we're well. And some of us are even thriving, I would say. And rediscovering those roots that yeah. the colonizers tried to, tried to hide or, 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 or press down. You also mentioned two-spirit, and you mentioned that in the context of LGBT. Could you tell us a bit about what a two-spirit person is? Yeah, it's, it's complicated for, for someone who identifies as LGBT. Uh, the concept of two-spirit is, is rather difficult to explain because it wasn't just about gender identity. It wasn't just about sexual orientation, but it, it was about the role that one plays in, in the community. So I'll give you a, a good way of explaining that is the word in Ojibwe, the word kwe. A lot of people think that word means woman, but actually what it translates into is a person who plays this role. So... Uh, a two-spirit person would be would might be called ogokwe, which means a certain type of a different kind of person that plays that role, and that would be that two-spirit person. Doesn't necessarily mean they're gay. It doesn't necessarily mean 
identify them, their gender, but it, it speaks more to the role they played in the community. We didn't have uh, pronouns. So, you know, this learning your pronouns, he, she, they, it's difficult for our people because many of uh, our elders, they'll call me she or he and, and flip it back and forth because it really doesn't matter yeah. to us. Or it didn't traditionally. It does now, of course, through colonization. Yeah. And, and the use of the, of the words two-spirit has been used uh, and, and, and engaged as part of the LGBT community now to, mm. to uh, I, I don't want to say identify, but at least give some voice to the indigenous uh, experience. One of the other things that you've just said in your introduction is about your HIV status. And I guess the question I really wanted to ask is, is how did you become involved in the AIDS movement? And how did you bring these two experiences together? Another great question, because it, it comes back, we're storytellers, indigenous people transfer knowledge through stories. So this is a great way to, to get squeeze this out of me, right? I was, I was diagnosed in 1990 with, with HIV, and, you know, I guess I, I was pretty traumatized, but it, I, I, and there was no medications, of course, back then that were effective, and people were dying all around me. And it was traumatizing, and it was desperate. It was a desperate time for all of us. Um, and around, you know, 1996 in Vancouver, they announced the new antiretroviral treatments, and they were saying people were getting off their deathbeds and going back to uh, to work. It, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't until you know a couple of years later when I actually developed AIDS, when my wife at the time and my son were uh, were telling me, you know, you're in denial, you're dying, and uh, if you won't get on the medications for us, then or for yourself, then please do it for us. And it was a trust issue. Hmm. My my family doesn't just doesn't trust thus the system, you know, um, and so it's a very hard for me. It was very hard for me to believe that these uh, medications were good for us because all the history and I've, I saw large doses of AZT killing people, for example, hmm. and so I just wasn't convinced. And it was them who who convinced me, but I went into a huge depression, Ben, because even though physically I was getting better. I couldn't understand how how is it that I came right to the edge of the spirit world? I could almost mm. smell it. I could feel it. I could feel Creator close to me, and then I walked back back from that, and here I am alive. And I was like, "Why is this happening?" And at the same time, I was invited to go to um, an annual general meeting and skills building session at the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network. When I got there, I took part in a two-day healing ceremony for people living with HIV. There were other guys that looked two-spirit or gay or LGBT, but there were also there were men and women. There was straight guy. There was a sweat lodge keeper, a traditional man with his with his wife. There was a Welsh woman who was married to an indigenous man. There was a baby, you know. And and what I realized is that I wasn't alone, and that there were this group. There was this group of people in Canada indigenous people living with HIV or responding to HIV like a family. And that just that psychic energy of knowing they were out there lifted me up emotionally and spiritually back to a, a, a more healthy place to the point where I realized someone came up to me and said, you know, um, what are you going to do now that you're going to live forever? You better make some plans. And that's the first time anybody ever gave me that hope. And that was the beginning of something important to me. Yeah, and here you are now. You know, we're at the start of 2020, mm. and you know you have created a number of 
national and international networks that bring Indigenous peoples together around HIV. And I, and I guess, you know, one of the questions that I would love to ask you is just, well, what is the state of the response with Indigenous communities? As we look at data that's provided to us, say, by UNAIDS and others, you can't see that. You can't tell. And it would be really interesting to get your sense of the over overall, just how things are playing out. Well, first of all, you know, Indigenous histories are, are rarely told. Uh, the histories written by the conqueror, the the, the victor of, of war, right? And so if you, when I grew up, I, I didn't see anything about Indigenous peoples. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't reading about our story. I was reading uh, the history according to Europeans who came over, that God gave them this land, and they had this pesky Indians around that they needed to get rid of. And, and globally, I mean, it's not just Europeans. Indigenous peoples uh, are so connected to the land that it's part of their health, that connection to land. So they'll tell you, I come from the mountain. I come from the river, the Credit River. That's our people. And the river is sacred to us. I am the river. And to when we're separated from our traditional lands and our and our and our the, those teachings, those storytellings, um, it it really does negatively affect our health. And, and when we respond in that way, connect, reconnecting Indigenous people with their with their culture and with their history, that's where the healing begins with us to reconnect with that that um, those those teachings that are still there. But it really it's also the loss of language mm. because worldviews are really encapsulated within language. And I'll give you an example. In, in our language, your forearm, uh, the, the word for forearm translates to pipe stem. And that's because when you lay the, the sacred pipe, you lay the stem of the pipe on your arm and that's how you hold it. And that's a traditional teaching ingrained right in the language and the, that worldview. It's all throughout the language. So when we lose our language, like... I have, we're disconnected from, from our culture and from that whole view, that whole cosmic view of the way the universe works and how we're all tied in. Do you, do you think that because the, and that speaks to the fact that the, the data on the state of HIV in, in indigenous communities is so limited. And is that perhaps, you know, part of the colonization that it's just not something that epidemiologists even think they need to account for? Even though we know that in communities, other risk behaviors, drug use, rates of uh, sexually transmitted infections can also be high. Yeah, I think that that erasure of indigenous histories and identity uh, is, is continued through the collection of data or the non-collection of data. Yeah. I mean, countries that are doing um, where we can see some data are countries that were colonized by Britain. So the, the U.S., um, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Those are the countries, that, those countries seem to be collecting quite a lot of uh, uh, data, at least more so than the rest of the world. But when you do a literature, literature search on indigenous, you have to understand the code words for indigenous from different regions. So in yes. Asia, you're talking about uh, ethnic groups or nomadic peoples or uh, rural communities, tribal, you know, there's all these other words that if you're if you're doing that research and trying to find information on these peoples, it's very difficult. And then the fact that nation states don't trust indigenous peoples because we're so connected to the land and we want to protect the land. 
And underneath all that soil, you know, the land contains so many natural resources, which are the, that's the wealth of countries basically is natural resources that we're, we're taken care of by indigenous peoples. By removing those indigenous peoples, they can just dig a big hole and take it all out. And what happens to the indigenous peoples? Their quality of life goes down. The social determinants of health are negatively affected and we become more, I don't like the word vulnerable or fragile, but we are more in harm's way. And we end up getting higher rates of HIV, diabetes, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, HIV is not an exception in terms of uh, social determinants of health. It is a symptom of colonization. And, and then a sort of a broader question then, when, then as we start, you know, over the course of the last 20, 30 years, developing HIV treatments and then prevention interventions that, that can be used, how have these been incorporated into indigenous populations? And you know, the logical, the logical um, uh, a sense might be that that distrust of the colonizer not goes only to culture, but also to the to the medicine and the biotechnology that they offer or impose upon the community. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because a lot of medicines were uh, created from, come from nature. And you take a few constituents pieces and trademark it and sell it back to the people that were um, originally custodians of, the, of this sort of natural medicine. You know, yeah, there's definitely a huge mistrust because, and, and, and a mistrust of research and technologies, anything institutional. It's, it's a foreign way of doing something. Even if, the, let's say they came up with the cure. For indigenous peoples, our identity is not only individual, it's collective. So I am not only me, I am my family, and I am my community, I am my nation. So if you cure me, what does that mean for mm. the rest of me, my nation, my family, my community? It's, it's taking care of a symptom, but what about what's driving these higher rates of, of HIV? Or why are we're still in harm's way unless we can reconnect with our land and reconnect with our culture and and the unity of, of our families, that's, that, that's what creates our resiliency, is that connection to each other, to, to spirit, to community, and, and to the land. So that's been taken away, and it, it, it creates um, vulnerability for us when we're standing alone without our communities. And then when services are provided, they're provided on a very basic, you know, very threadbare, threadbare level. That's certainly been you know, the case that south of the border here in the United States, people are identified as Native Americans and they talk about the Indian health services and the difficulties that people have had in accessing PrEP, for example, mm -hmm. because the nurse that would prescribe or give you the PrEP, because it may not be a doctor, might well be the person who is someone is, that is already connected in your family. That's right. And, and I don't auntie, know you know, auntie, can I have some yeah. condoms or can I have some pills that will protect me when I have sex? Yeah. I don't know if your family is anything like mine, but I mean, the last person I would ask is my aunt for, you know, ask condoms from my aunt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, um, in most, in many indigenous cultures, uh, sex itself was not spoken of so bluntly. It, it, and, mm. you know, the sex education, for example, is usually genitalia, you know, with here's a label and you point here and that, that's called that, that's called that. That's not the kind of uh, sexual education we used to have. It would be a storytelling, and that the story would be the same for everyone. But when you're younger, you would get a certain something out of it. You would get a teaching. And when you're older, because your mind expands and your worldview expands, 
you get a deeper understanding. And at every stage of your development, that same story, that same teaching would have deeper and deeper meaning. And a lot of the sexual health or, or roles that or choices that you can make in your life were told through these stories in our languages, which encompass that worldview. And when, when that is replaced with a foreign system, with a different worldview from uh, an organization or um, a country that is looking to, looks at its citizenry as units of production, it's a lot different than the way indigenous communities traditionally looked at their citizenry as um, helping each person find find their role, their their natural helping role in the communities to be not like, here's a job, shape yourself like this job, but rather, what shape are you? And therefore, what is your role then? What is your unique role in our community and in this world? Why are you here? That would be the the function of our each of our citizens is to find out who they are and to take up that rightful those rightful roles and responsibilities in the community. So as as we look to the future, Trevor, how, how I, I was going to ask you what are the kinds of technologies that you would want to see researched and that you feel communities would benefit from and that you feel you know the networks and groups that you work with. Would would really benefit from, but I but I think perhaps I should ask the question in a different in a different way. How do we go about engaging with the biomedical field? How do indigenous networks engage with doctors and scientists in ways that's going to be meaningful for them, not for the research community? Well, yeah, there needs to be a, you know equity there. There there needs to be. We need to develop a trust and rapport. And at the end of the day, it's about a relationship between human two human beings. So if an indigenous person goes in to see the doctor, the doctor has 15 minutes to figure out biologically what's wrong with this person. Yeah. The indigenous person is coming in trying to assess that human being in the spirit. Who is this person? Is this someone, is this a friend or is this a foe? Are they trying to hurt me? Because I've heard a lot about, you know, um, Indigenous peoples engaging in the in the healthcare system and and end up being hurt some way, you know, end up being disrespected. And there's so many stories like that of an indigenous man comes in and to an emergency department in some kind of diabetic shock, and no one sees him for 27 hours and he dies because they think he's drunk and they just want him to sleep it off. And meanwhile, he's dying from a diabetic condition. And this is this has happened more than once in in Canada. Examples like this happen: forced sterilization, experiments, evil experiments. I would call them evil because our people get hurt, you know, and they're not. There's no yeah. consent. And so, how would we go about bringing what? Yeah. For other, let's let's say the colonizer populations might be beneficial, set like prep. Yeah. How would how would you go about making that available in, you know, in the in the community that you're from? Well, yeah, the answer definitely isn't knocking on the door as a non-Indigenous person that you've never met before and saying, hey, I've got the pill that's going to fix you because yeah. that, that trust, that history is there. It's, it's, it's really about helping Indigenous peoples to develop that leadership on that issue. And a great example uh, in New York City is a, is a young man named Sheldon Raymore who has taken on the mantle, the champ- he's a champion for PrEP pre-exposure yeah. prophylaxis because indigenous people aren't accessing it. And be, 
And part of it's that not openly speaking about sex thing. And another part of it is that, that sex is a taboo. So auntie doesn't want you, doesn't want to give you that pill so you can go have more and more sex. Yeah. It, it's, it's a moralistic thing. And our, I think that indigenous people are pretty good learners and we've taken on a lot of this moralistic, uh, these rules that came from another place. And now we're imposing that on each other. So Sheldon has taken on the role and turned prep into a character called Prepahontas. And Prepahontas is a play, a bit of a play on words on Pocahontas, but it really opens up because Pocahontas in Hollywood is all about this young sexual woman who's mm. romantic and all of this, but Prepahontas actually uh, lived, a, was terribly abused and was quite young and, and abused by yes. older men. And so the, you know, when you bring up Prepahontas, it opens up a huge discussion, not only of, um, of prep, but around colonization and around how young indigenous peoples engage with the, the colonizer. There's, for us, this is a discussion we need to have. And for non-indigenous, often, if there's one or two indigenous in the room, non-indigenous might stand up, and I've heard this, why do you have to dwell in the past? Why can't we just move forward? We'll all join hands. The lions will lay down with the lambs and we'll all sing Kumbaya together. But for indigenous people, it's important that we know where we came from, connection to our culture and our land, and where we're at now, but, and to know where we want to go. And that the past, present, and future all happen at the same time for indigenous peoples. We don't forget. Which leads us to the international work that you're doing mm. and the international indigenous HIV AIDS community, EHAC, that you and a group have set up and that's uh, going to be part of the uh, organizers of a pre-conference at AIDS 2020, you know, the big shindig that all the uh, scientists and policymakers, they all come to get together every two years. Mm -hmm. and you've done this at previous conferences, but this is going to be a very important one. Can you talk us a bit about EHAC um, and the working group that's being set up to do this? Well, Indigenous people have been meeting um, informally since 1989, uh, I mean, around HIV and, and the global engagement. And they would uh, often go to the international AIDS conferences, and they would meet anywhere where they could, whether that was in the cafeteria, maybe in the positive, HIV positive lounge. Uh, we'd run into each other at workshops that, that had, you know, that resonated for indigenous peoples. And even back then we knew we needed to have a, 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 a unified voice for indigenous peoples responding to HIV. The, you know, at the UN, if no one is bringing up indigenous issues, then there's no global target set for indigenous. And that's exactly where we're at. So when we finally are at the table, sometimes we look at these things and I, you, know, you look at the UNAIDS gap report and I, and, and I Google, I, I search for the word indigenous. It doesn't exist in there. It's not there. I mean, the, the gap report has a huge gaps in it. I mean, indigenous, I mean, let's face it, the world could get to the 90, 90, 90 targets without engaging indigenous peoples at all. And we would be, continue to be the 10%, what they call, you know, no one left behind. But if, if you're writing a strategy and you're leaving out a group, isn't that by design, that's not being left behind, that's being thrown under the bus, <laughs> you know? And so if we're not there at these global forums, you know, 
over and over talking about indigenous issues, then our concerns will not be uh, included in these global targets where we compare how good or how well are we doing with indigenous peoples. And part of the problem, having noticed this over the years, is that the AIDS movement, for all its talk about inclusion and diversity, really hasn't made space for the indigenous voices. And and why do you think that is? How how have we failed? Well, I think that all these groups, each each of the uh, how, how can we describe it? The uh, the target groups or the key affected populations, they've struggled so hard to stake out some territory and said, "This is our identity. These are our priorities, and you better darn well work with us because otherwise we're gonna you know we're gonna make it known." I I. Really, looking at the trans movement, the transgender movement in terms of HIV, they're finally getting some traction. I'm so proud of the transgender community, and I wish we could get there. I mean, the trans community has done so well that they're beginning to get all this pushback now. And that's, you know you're doing well, and you've been noticed if people start standing up and pushing back against you because they're protecting their territory, the stakeholder territory. So really, there's only so many apples in the world we want a piece of the action. We don't want to be left behind. If resources aren't allocated toward indigenous priorities, then we will continue to be left behind. And indigenous peoples think seven generations in the future. So if you're going to make a, a decision on an action that we're going to take as indigenous peoples, we need to think about how that will affect the seventh generation from now. And when I think back, my ancestors seven generations ago must have prayed really hard and they must have done some really good work because I'm still here and I'm healthy and strong and so are many of my colleagues and, and, and fellow Indigenous people living with HIV. I thank my ancestors for that. So, Trevor, we have a huge year ahead of us. We have a huge decade ahead of us, 2020. I hope we can come back and chat with you as the plans for the Indigenous Working Groups pre-conference and the EHAC become real and we get closer to it. And perhaps we could even have feedback from the pre-conference on the podcast. That would be terrific. Oh, that would be fantastic. We, we want to look at these global targets and, 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 and talk amongst ourselves and with our partners about what is the role for indigenous peoples in helping the world to get to zero by 2030 or you know the sustainable development goals what's our role how can we help the world it's not just about oh poor us come and help us we have a lot to offer but i i, I can also say that the um when nation states get together and create global targets they don't always consider indigenous peoples and often indigenous aspirations diverge from from the countries, from the governments in the countries where they reside. So what we will also be doing is poking holes in some of those goals and saying, this is not working for us. You know, the right to development, for example, what does that mean to indigenous peoples? Does that mean someone has the right to take the top off our mountain and dig a big hole in it? Or does that yeah. mean we have a right to take care of that mountain? Do you know? Well, I certainly know that you are at the forefront of making sure that the AIDS movement and the global health movement, that we are listening to you and to Indigenous voices. So thank you so much for being the first A Shot in the Arm podcast guest in 2020. It's been a real privilege having you on the show. 
And, uh, well, Trevor, you are a shot in the arm. <laughs> well, thanks. And I hope uh, your viewers come and visit us at the 8th International Indigenous Pre-Conference on HIV and AIDS. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Hope you've enjoyed our show. Thank you to our guest, Trevor Stratton. Thanks also to the team at Newsdoc Media for making the magic happen, to Eric Espera, our director, and to Brian Regas. And finally, thanks to you. As always, let us know if you have any comments on this or any other show, or if you have thoughts on subjects we should cover and guess you'd like to hear and see on the show. Thank you for being a shot in the arm and have a great week, great 2020 and a great decade.